God, we welcome you to speak to our hearts. Uh, we're pressing in to hear your voice and to know you, and we trust that you will speak to us. So do it. Thank you for your amazing word that transforms our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a call to aggressive Christianity. Uh, interchangeable is aggressive love or active faith, right? This is a call to that. In fact, for you to get the sense of, uh, of, the, of the call to adventure that this verse is calling you to, uh, Jackson, if you will play the music as I reread that verse to the soundtrack. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. All right. This is the adventure that Jesus is calling you to. So what is that race? We get another hint of it, uh, uh, an expounding of that race that we are called to run in Philippians 3, 7 through 14. I remember when I was in youth group, one of the first Bible verses that Tony, when he was the youth pastor, had us memorize was this entire large portion. I'm like, oh my gosh, this, what? It's too long. But anyway... We memorized it, and I'm so glad for it. My mind always goes to it. Let me read it. But what things were gained to me, this is Paul talking, who used to have a lot of stuff that he considered gain. He says, what things were gained to me? These I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call or the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So you see, this race is to lay hold of that which Christ Jesus laid hold of you. He did a lot to get his hands on you. I mean, more than we really fully grasp, I believe, more than I fully grasp. I mean, I know it mentally, but Lord, give us revelation of, of what you did to get your hands on us. He, you know, he, he gave up, in a sense, he gave up uh, his his. Godship, his immortality, I mean, in a sense. He, he, he never gave up, he was always God. But he gave up that spiritual being of immense power and wealth, and he came in the form of a human, and he lived under, under normal oppressions of human life. And then, not only that, he's wrongly accused of things, he is tortured beyond imagination, and he was crucified, and he did that for us because he was the perfect sacrifice, and that perfect sacrifice was winning us, winning us so that we could be with him because we are not holy, but he is holy. And he gave of himself, God gave of himself to get his hands on us. And it says, Paul is saying, 
Um, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. So why? Why was Christ doing that? He was doing that to bring us in to the fullness of God that was talked about and prayed about this morning, the fullness of God, the fullness of life in Christ. That, that's not this normal everyday life of, of, uh, of our carnal flesh. You know, we do work, we do school, we do chores, we get in fights, we ask forgiveness, we just move on. The human experience, just plain, flat, dull. He is bringing us into the fullness of the life of Christ where we are uh, speaking with God. We are moving with God. He is telling us to do things. We are doing things in his power. We are embracing the fullness of him. We are being brought into the Trinity of God. This is a very awesome and powerful thing. Um, so why did Jesus chase after you? For the fullness of life in Christ. What is the high calling that God has placed on your life? The fullness of life in Christ. And in that Philippians verse, Paul does expound a little bit. If you'll notice, see, part of that life is not trusting in your own righteousness, not trusting in my own righteousness, but in God's. See, when we trust in our own righteousness, that can lead really only two places. It can lead to shame or pride. And uh, it, because you're comparing uh, your success in life to uh, how well you are doing the things that you think God is calling you to do. And you're like, oh, I totally blew it. I'm worthless. And, you know, the devil loves to point that out too. So you'll start believing it real quick. Like, oh, I'm depending on my own righteousness. And I'm not very righteous because you have any idea what I did last week or this morning or whatever. Um, the contrast to that is pride. When you ignorantly think you're really doing well. Because nobody's really doing well ever. But you can get in those places and like, oh, I'm doing this for the Lord. You know, I volunteered at City Fest and I whatever. I, you know, you start to get prideful. And, and, you know, pride. And sometimes people know they're prideful. Have you ever been there where you struggle with it? You're like, oh, man, I'm doing it again. I'm being prideful. You know, I'm, I'm constantly flip-flopping back and forth between pride and shame. It's, it's, it's so stupid. But um, this fullness of the life of Christ that we are being called to, that we are uh, racing forward and pressing on to, to get our hands of, because it's the same thing that God, uh, you know, pressed on to get his hands a hold of for us, is that we would not be bothered by our own righteousness. Shame, gone. Pride, gone. Because I'm not depending on my righteousness. I'm depending on the righteousness of Jesus. He is righteous and he has made me clean and I'm trusting in him. I don't have to worry about it. And because of the joy of being free from that, I'm going to end up naturally living a more righteous life. But it's not about my righteousness. It's about Jesus' righteousness. And I'm free from that. That's part of the fullness of Christ. The second thing that uh, Paul mentions here is knowing him. Knowing him. See, a lot of times maybe we make the Christian life about the stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that he has assigned us to in the Christian life, but all that is like way down here. In fact, that stuff will also happen naturally when we go not after the stuff, but after the man. When we go after Jesus, Paul wants to know him. This is part of his race. This is what he's pressing on towards, to knowing Jesus, the man, the person, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, knowing him. And as you know, there's a difference between knowing of and knowing. This is not textbook knowledge. This is, you could spend your whole life in church and you could memorize the Bible and you could become a scholar at, at a Christian university. Sadly, this happens way too often and never know Jesus, right? You got to know him. He's pressing on to know him personally. Um, and then it says, knowing the power of his resurrection. Now that's pretty exciting. This is not your average life. This is experiencing the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. And as you become one with the Lord because you've given yourself up to him and you're trusting in him and you've asked him into your heart, he is now dwelling within you with all the power of God himself. And you get to walk in that. And what does that look like? It looks like all different things. It looks like a life well lived, a love 
fully loving, you know, a heart fully given, um, you know, uh, a desire for righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, all that stuff, love, joy, peace, patience. As you dwell in the Lord, you develop these things, and it's the power of his resurrection, but it's also these things that are a little more obviously supernatural, such as the spiritual gifts. So you got the fruits that are going to be a result of uh, the power of his resurrection, and you got the gifts which are a result of the power of his resurrection. And if you guys have read your Bible and you know about those gifts, these are really exciting things. These are like prophesying to somebody. And we don't have to make this stuff mystical. This is God doing the work. He just wants to use you as his vessel because he loves you and he loves partnership and he loves friendship and he has invited you into partnership. So walking in the power of his resurrection is letting God do his thing, but through you. So maybe God has a word for somebody like Marcel. God has a word for Marcel, and maybe he's giving it to some of you right now. Keep praying about that when, after the service. You can go up to him and say, Marcel, I believe that God gave me a word for you. And if it's the living word of God, then it's transformative. So it is the power of God transforming people. The power of God could be miracles. It could be um, going up to people and praying for them when they are injured or sick or blind or whatever and then seeing complete recovery. Guys, this stuff happens all over the world. It's real. It's available. And it is exciting. Um, the very next thing he talks about, is it seems so different from the power of his resurrection, but it's just the other side of the coin. He wants to be conformed to his death. And what does that mean? That means you are so confident in the life that you have in Christ that this carnal life means so much less to you because you are aware of your eternity. You are part of the infinite God now. And even if your flesh should die, then you are living forever with Christ. And you are coming back to live with Christ on this earth at some point, um, and, or you're going to heaven before that, or whatever. You're just confident, and he is so good, and he is so great. You are comparing values. On the one hand, you have the stuff of life that used to matter. You know, you know my reputation, my career, uh, what my friends think about me, my money, whatever. And then you compare that to the eternal weight of glory, and it's like, oh man, there's not even a comparison here. There's not even a comparison. Being conformed to his death is like, I'm not worried whatsoever about the losing of anything, of my possessions or even of my life because, in fact, I'll just consider it joy because I am going closer. I'm going to be with Jesus and he gave it all up for me. I mean, conforming to his death is humility. It's humility. Um, conforming to his death, the walk to the cross is also letting others be right when you know they're wrong. You know, it, that's, that's a small version of it. The large version of it is being, becoming a martyr. Whatever, whatever it takes. It does, all it is, is this life, Lord, this, if I have to give it up, I'm giving it up because there's something far greater, this eternal life with you that I already, already have. And then the last thing he mentions in there is the ultimate resurrection. This, you do attain something real, something in the physical. It's not just like mental or spiritual, like trippy, new agey concepts. It is something very real, the very real resurrection where you live with Christ forever uh, in the physical and in the spiritual together. It's real. So um, this, this life, you know, walking in the supernatural, you know, loving harder and stronger and passionately and not worrying about shame or pride because you're, trust, you, you're confident in his righteousness. And it's just like Paul here. He goes, I know that I haven't attained it yet, but this is what I'm striving towards. And, and man, when we compare our lives to Paul, we're like, oh man, if we can only get there. But Paul's like, oh man, I haven't even come close. We're always on this journey, but that life, doesn't that look so different from the, this concept of regular Christianity that we kind of invented in the Western world, right? That, that, that Christianity, there's an idea of Christianity that is you get saved, you make sure you go to church each week, you do at least one extracurricular activity, like a home group or a ladies meeting or whatever, and above all, 
listen to Z88.3. That is the mark of a real Christian. Oh, yeah, you need, you need to put a fish on your car. And if you're a business, you better have a fish on your advertising, because then you're just living for money. You don't even know God. So anyway, that life, that's, that's the fake life. That, uh, you know, uh, Jesus himself addresses that in the book of Revelations, where he says, you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. You're not living. You haven't touched, you haven't tapped into the real life yet. The real life is that which is in Christ. All that stuff we just talked about a minute ago, trusting in his righteousness and pressing on to continue to grow in that. Um, imagine if Jesus was, okay, we don't have to imagine this part, but imagine he was totally sinless, which he, would, he, he was that, but imagine that he wasn't aggressive. Like, imagine if all he was striving for while he was on the earth was to live a sinless life, right? Who would benefit? Just Jesus. And none of us would be here. None of us would be saved. That's it. The whole world, toast. We're all in trouble. <laughs> but, you know, he did not live the modern Western Christian life at all. He was aggressive. He was pushing on to the point of giving up his life. And here we all are. Now billions of people throughout time know Jesus and are going to spend forever with him. He was active. Uh, Ellie, where are you? Where, oh, can you come here, Ellie? I did this with the youth. Uh, I'm going to do it here because I thought it was a good lesson. So a lot of, uh, uh, of the youth and several adults... Here, uh, we all go to Jeremiah's Krav Maga class, and uh, a lot of us have, have just uh, passed our test into level two. It was very fun. All right, so there are some stances uh, that, that they've given names. Uh, so let's start, Ellie. Show us a passive stance. So, passive is when you're unaware of a situation. Show us a neutral stance. So now, in this state, you are becoming aware of a situation. You're not 100% sure if it's truly threatening, but you're becoming aware. Show us fight stance. All right, this is you are aware of a dangerous situation. In fact, it's imminent. You are about to engage in dangerous activity, like that's it. That's what you're doing. Um, in fact, the very next thing that happens is going to be some form of combat. So go ahead and show us jab, cross, forward motion with a knee. With a knee. All right. Don't leave yet. Because all of these stances also relate to the stances in our spiritual lives. So when I, you can stand in passive if you want, but stay here. So when I was doing this with the youth, we were specifically talking about 1 Timothy 4.12, which says, don't, look any, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And I pointed out how um, we all know what negative conduct and negative speech looks like as an example, right? And we, we strive to not do negative speech, so passive. Just, uh, so here's her striving, if you want to call it striving, not to do negative conduct and negative speech. She's not going up to innocent toddlers and kicking them in the head. She's, she's not um, telling people how ugly they are. Uh, and uh, actually, honestly, it is a struggle sometimes, isn't it? We, we, <laughs> We're pretty nasty at times, and we, can, uh, we have to hold our tongue just to get into passive stance, just to not be negative. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, uh, don't let anybody look down on you or young, but make sure not to do negative speech, negative conduct, negative love, negative faith, negative purity, whatever. It says, be an example. 
um, in, in that. So then, then after uh, passive stance, maybe we can find ourselves in neutral stance. Hands up. So now you're slightly aware that maybe there is a spiritual situation going on. Maybe you're aware that God might be up to something. Maybe the enemy might be up to something. Maybe there's something bigger here. But you're still not doing anything. So what does it matter if you're aware? See, this is the person now who's going to church. And, and they're like actually interested in the Bible. And they're interested in knowing God more. But what are they really doing? What are you really doing? This doesn't, this doesn't look like pressing on towards the goal. This doesn't look like, you know, running the race. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm aware. I'm aware of what's going on, but I'm not doing anything. Uh, the next thing, uh, back to what we were doing at youth with Timothy, and I was specifically addressing speech and conduct, would be a, a fight stance. This is actually... This is actually what we're called to. He says, be an example. So you're moving from uh, passive uh, or, what was that one called? I already forgot. Neutral. Pa you're going from passive, you're going past neutral, and, and you're now engaging in positive speech, which the Bible warns us of idle words, words that are useless. They just get thrown in the dump of eternity. But it says, stay away from those. Make sure your words have meaning and are powerful. You are now building others up in Christ. And your conduct is actually doing stuff for other people or for the Lord or whatever. Um, and like I said, fight stance is just prior to the imminent, uh, imminent engagement of violence. So that's the next thing. So this basically means I'm fighting. So now you can start fighting just throw out some shadow boxing or whatever, right? Um, <laughs> you are setting an example. So now let me go. Okay, okay, you can sit down. Let's go. Give her a hand. Um, so let me reread verse 1 of uh, Hebrews 12 which says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, oh, who cares, I'm going to keep going, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, so laying aside, that part, let us lay aside the things that easily ensnare, like sin that ensnares, lay aside the stuff. That is getting yourself out of negative and into passive, or perhaps neutral. Passive or neutral. So the laying, so that is part of it. We got to get ourselves out of negative and at least into neutral or passive, right? But then it moves on, let us lay aside, and then it says, let us run. Let us run. That is moving from neutral uh, to, to, fight, to fight stance. Um, oh, is Ellie still here? All right. That's all right. Uh, yeah. All right. Here's something, that they, here's something that they don't teach at Krav. The difference between... Oh, I got I to gotta find the words here. Let's see. Ah, the difference between defensive fight stance and offensive fight stance. Anybody have an idea what the difference is? No, the only difference is what's in here. That's it. Defensive fight stance, that means, in the natural, it means I'm about to engage in violence, but I don't want to pursue them. I'm going to just defend myself because they're going to come at me and it's really scary. I'm going to defend myself. All right? And uh, the other way is, what did I call it already? Offensive. Offensive. That's, these people are in trouble. They need my help. My family is in trouble. I'm taking the first step. That's offensive fight stance. So let us run that race aggressively. Uh, Tony. What does Matthew eleven twelve say by memory? 
From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Forceful men lay hold of the kingdom of God. We are violently pursuing this life of love. We are. And uh, one of the instructors at the Croft testing said, violence isn't the answer, but when it is, it's the only answer. Well, until Jesus comes back, spiritual violence is the only answer ever. And that spiritual violence actually looks like chasing hard after Jesus. Uh, As a side note, uh, since I was talking about 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anybody look down on you because you are young. I just want to point out that Paul wrote that because he was addressing Timothy, who was a young man. But it also applies to, like, whatever you think your handicap is. You know, if you are old or you're female or you're, you got a physical handicap or you're unpopular or you make mistakes or uh, don't let anybody look down on you for that. But set an example. Be aggressive in your love, in, in your pursuit of Jesus and the lifestyle that uh, he asks of us. All right. Um, so in this verse, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, um, who is this cloud of witnesses? Out of context, you could make all sorts of guesses um, that have legitimacy. Uh, so maybe you think this, the cloud of witnesses are all the unbelievers in this world which are watching you. That's true, they are. They're watching you. You know, the, the unbelievers are curious just how you're going to act, you know? Are you any different than anybody else? Are you a hypocrite? Um, sadly, everybody on all levels are a hypocrite, so, you know, whatever. But uh, the good news is we rely on his righteousness, not ours. Be encouraged. <laughs> all right. Anyway, you might think it's them. You might think it's the church. You might think it's all those who have uh, died and are like looking down on you from heaven. Is this the cloud of witnesses? Is this the reason why we're supposed to move forward uh, and do these great things and run this great race? Um, Actually, if you were to read it in context, because there's not chapter breaks, you know, in the original writings, you know, this sentence, it starts with the word therefore. You know this is not the beginning. If you know English, um, It's addressing something that just happened. The word therefore means, you know, because of A, B is coming up, right? So we got to find out what this A is, and it gives us the answer of who this cloud of witnesses is. In fact, I think that the uh, translators of the New Living Translation were concerned that people would uh, read this out of context, and they went ahead and included uh, the answer. I'm going to read the NLT version. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. So, anybody knows what's in Hebrews 12, which is, you know, the paragraphs that lead right up to this sentence, therefore. Hebrews, I mean, Hebrews 11, sorry, Hebrews 11. Yeah, Federico, say it loud. Yeah, it's this whole story of all these people that walked in faith. And uh, it's just describing their feats, the stuff that they accomplished, the stuff that they went through. It's these people that have, uh, they endured hardships, they experienced glory. And it's, it's almost like it's saying, um, since you have been brought into this heritage of these people who for thousands of years have been carrying on the torch, then you too press on for the glory of God. You're part of a, of a heritage. Um, and some of those people in there listed are Abraham and Moses and Gideon and Samson and David and Rahab and just, there's a ton of people. Hebrews 11 is really, really awesome. Um, now, It's good to know that you are part of something much bigger, that you are part of this great heritage. 
because um, if you find yourself separated from people that are chasing hard after God, then you're going to feel like you're the only one in the world. And you may start to question the value in it. You may start to question whether you got it right anyway. And maybe it's all hogwash or anywhere on the spectrum of, of faith there. Um, as, you, as you find yourself alone, we even see one of the greatest prophets in the Bible, Elijah, uh, totally defeated in doubt because he thought he was the only one pressing on, but uh, the Word of God says, look, look at these people that have gone before you, all sorts of people throughout the ages. You are part of this. Welcome to the club of aggressive lovers. Go hard. Go for it. You're not alone. I was watching a movie recently, and there was a quote. Speaking of the villain, it said, well, if I were you-know-who, I'd want to I'd want you to feel cut off from everyone else because if it's just you alone, you're not as much of a threat. Luke's smiling. <laughs> he should be smiling. He's engaged. Woo! <laughs> All right. Yeah, Satan wants to make us feel alone. He wants you to feel alone, and he will be so happy to cut you off. But the thing is, it doesn't matter if you get cut off, if you find yourself in a university or a workplace or a culture of any sort in which you're completely cut off from those who, uh, who are seeking hard after God. You know, according to Scripture, that you are running this race with millions of others who have done this aggressively. You're part of this thing. Um, me, uh, I was kind of accidentally uh, brought into this uh, amazing adventure. Um, a couple years ago, Jeremiah was prophetically drawn to this uh, cottage in downtown, or in a Crane Creek area, Eddie Tucker. He was, you know, prophetically drawn to this place. Totally unprophetically, I ended, ended up there, too. <laughs> and uh, what, Nancy's heard this story, some people from my home group, but basically there's this cottage and it happens to be built by the first people who lived in Melbourne, the founders of Melbourne, these three guys who are former slaves, Peter Wright, Wright Brothers, and Balaam Allen. And uh, they built this cottage, and it became a house of worship. So the first building in Melbourne was a house of worship, right? And so not only that, but then some powerful missionary woman, when, when they moved on or got older, you know, she took over this ministry that happened at this house. Great ministry, amazing, powerful stuff happened with this woman. And when she got old and was ready to die, um, then it moved on into the hands of the Tabernacle Church, which is, uh, got famous in the mid-90s for a great uh, revival of God, God doing great things. But anyway, it's still being used for ministry to this day. Right now in Melbourne, the, the first place where people worshipped God in the, in the first building here is now being used to serve um, like homeless people, I think, uh, coming in who need a place to get started or whatever. Just the ministry continues. And, and as, I was, as I showed up here at this place, just by chance, I was thinking, oh man, what a legacy that Melbourne has. The first place of worship was made in the first building by the first settlers. Like Melbourne is rooted in worship. This is what, what a heritage that we have been brought into. And I was like, I feel a song coming on. <laughs> and so, so I began to write it and I did, I wrote the song. But when I started to write it, I knew that I couldn't start in the late 1800s because that's not where our heritage starts. Not even the heritage in Melbourne. The heritage in Melbourne starts actually with Abel. Abel saying yes to God. Or it starts with Abraham just entering into the new family of faith. And we have this great heritage, this legacy that we are brought into. Um, it's like Hebrews 11 deep. So uh, verse 23 and verse 24 I am assuming that's Hebrews 11. Let me go to it and make sure. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was... Is that really what I want to read? Verses 23, and, and that reiterates. Huh? All right, let's see. 
I don't remember this part of my notes. Because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command, uh, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Um, That's not the verses I had written down exactly. It's a little more, but I like that. Let's stick with that. Um, So Moses, in the natural, because of the circumstances of his life, came into great wealth. And it says, for the sake of Christ, very interesting choice of words. For the sake of Christ, who we know that Jesus didn't come to the earth for like two more thousand years or something like that, some very distant time from the time of Moses, um, for the sake of Christ, he considered the wealth like worthless because he found the real treasure. He found the real treasure, this aggressive life. Um, What is for the sake of Christ? How can this, how can the Bible use that sentence referring to Moses when Jesus wasn't here yet? Um, I could just try to say it off the top of my head, but I think I wrote some good notes if I can only find them. (laughs) Oh, I can't find them, so we'll move on. So the sake of Christ is the purpose of the Redeemer, the purpose of Jesus. Christ was crucified before the foundation of the earth, so this plan was set in motion from the beginning, before the earth was made. And for that same cause, Moses tapped into that cause, you know, for the sake of Christ— who hasn't even done his work physically, who has done it legally, I'm pressing on, I don't need this wealth, I'm choosing a greater identity. Um, I'm choosing this thing that God has called me to, I'm pressing on in that, even though I'm uh, going to experience great hardships this way. And let's see, if I even have a line in the song about that, and Moses, never mind, can't remember it. You know, I got pressure, you're looking at me. All right. All right, anyway, before we examine the cloud of witnesses in greater detail, uh, let's consider how to throw off those weights and the sin that so easily entangles us and how to run with endurance. So in the natural, in the natural for like running, like running a real race, it's, it's pretty easy. Uh, you know, don't wear jeans. Don't wear a backpack full of rocks. You know, you probably want to take your keys out. All the stuff, it burdens you, you know. I, uh, I tried running a few times with uh, laces that were way too long. Um, they easily entangle. I uh, bit it hard. I was a bloody mess, and I did it again. Twice. Some jogger stopped and looked at me like, you survived that? Um, so, but... In, in, the, in the supernatural, these things that it's talking about um, throwing aside and moving on, uh, it's, a lot easy, it's a lot more difficult because they're not physical things. Physical things we can remove. These are emotional things. These are spiritual things, the things that entangle us. Um, these are mental things. So it's, we can't just like focus and, and just like think hard enough, and if we make the right scrunched-up face, then we'll be able to get over those things that slow us down, you know, our doubt and whatever. Uh, so let's look at some of those things that, that slow us. So sin, that, that one it says clear, but it says that there's other things too. So things that throw us down and the sin that easily entangles. So there's the stuff, and then there's the sin. And the sin's the big one. So you, you know what sin is, so we got to get rid of that. But we can't, you know, sometimes, especially if you have an addiction to sin, you can't be like, I'm no longer addicted, I'm no longer addicted, I'm no longer addicted. You know, you need something to break that addiction. Um, maybe you have worry or stress. Those things slow you down from the race. Maybe you have shame or busyness or, or doubt, or you're just not reading the word enough. Um, you know, you can't say, I don't doubt anymore. Oh, I'm starting to feel doubt. I'm starting to question things. Hmm, not doubting, not doubting. It doesn't work. Um, you can't just throw those things off. So how do we do it? Cynicism is another thing I put down there. 
Cynicism is a big deal. Cynicism, um, it actually, it separates you. And we don't want to be separated because what it does is you began to look at other people's actions and you began to say, well, because of such and such, those aren't good. You start to create this ideal that only you somehow can, can reach. And uh, as you get separated, then the demonic is to have a heyday because you're stepping into prideful territory. You're not being conformed to the death of Christ. You are now standing tall and proud. Anyway, very dangerous. The opposite is humility. Uh, anyway, so how do we throw off cynicism? You know, I know you feel cynicism. I feel cynicism. It just happens. We get cynical. We get all these things that I've mentioned. So how do you throw it off? The answer is not addressing those things head on like you would think. You know, just like in the physical. You can't just take off the backpack, you know, change into some shorts or whatever. Um, the answer is in verse 2, Hebrews 11. Let me move to it. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus is how you throw that stuff off, is how you overcome. Looking to Jesus. Tony has been talking a lot about the revelation of Jesus being the transformative thing that allows us to live more into the fullness of Christ and do the things. Um, see, this verse also says, looking to Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. So here's something I've been talking about a lot that's been coming up a lot for the past month is we've been addressing uh, doubt. And, and we have family members or people that have went to these universities I've mentioned perhaps where, uh, where these Bible teachers don't even know God and then they leave. Uh, uh, it could be a Christian university. It could be a secular university, whatever. They, they, they start to have doubt and then they turn away from God. Um, but... Here we go. It says, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. So if you begin to doubt, which is normal, you don't have to be ashamed of your doubt. We're curious people, and we put things together, and sometimes things don't add up, and you begin to wonder why. Sometimes you do have doubt. Well, the answer in verse 2 is go to the person who first gave you any bit of faith you have. He's going to be the finisher of that. He's going to finish your faith. He's going to build it up. So run to Jesus. Eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus, that's everything. Any addiction you have, broken by a revelation of the love of Jesus. Any worry, stress, it'll break in the revelation of the love of Jesus. Any shame, it'll be broken with a revelation of the love of Jesus. In fact, your busyness even, when you get a real revelation of the love of Jesus, it will compel a different lifestyle. Because you're going to see what's valuable and what's worthless. Uh... Mary and Martha, who was the aggressive one? At least in the, in the one story that everybody thinks about. Mary was the aggressive one. Martha was running around doing stuff, so you would think, oh, she's doing stuff, she's the aggressive one. Oh, Mary was doing stuff too. She was doing the far more important thing. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to the words of Jesus. So in doing nothing physically in this instance, she was doing more. She was living aggressively. She was pressing on towards the prize. She was throwing off everything that slowed her down. Amen. Amen. Tony had mentioned Isaiah 6 recently, taught out of Isaiah 6 recently. Um, uh, about Isaiah getting this revelation of God uh, after he uh, potentially was struggling because of the political situation with King Uzziah dying and stuff. Um, but then he gets this revelation of God and look what it does to him. I'm just going to reiterate this, uh, his teaching. Isaiah 6, 5 through 8 says, Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined. He gets this revelation of the glory of God and the first thing is brokenness. And that, that's what happens. You get a revelation of his, even his great love for you, and you are just broken. You, you feel like you can't even bear this great love. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. See, his love is also light, and it reveals everything. And you will become aware of your uncleanliness. And I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. So this revelation is beautiful but painful all at once. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Then he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sin. So here he is, he now gets a revelation of the forgiveness of God. 
Yeah, yeah, you spoke nasty. Lots of nasty coming out of your mouth. But guess what? You are made clean. Because of my great love for you, you are made clean. You can't look at that anymore. You can't feel any shame. It's gone. I got rid of it. You are whole. Your mouth is clean now. So now he begins to get encouraged, so encouraged that it's going to lead to aggressive Christianity. And we can call it Christianity, even though he was before Christ, because of the sake of Christ. Uh, Then I heard the voice of God saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah said, here I am, send me. See, now he's ready to go. Now he's ready to be active because he got a revelation of God's goodness. Peter had a similar story. Uh, If you remember, he was fishing and uh, he wasn't catching anything. And then Jesus was like, bam. And then he had tons of fish. And then with all the fish, he dropped to his knees, and he realized how unworthy he was. He was like, oh, I'm, I'm just a sinner. Because here is, suddenly he's got great wealth, because that was his living. He could sell the stuff and make money. And, but he saw the kindness of God, the goodness of God, had a revelation of the goodness of God, was broken. But then uh, Jesus uh, touched him, gave him joy. I should have looked up the verse. I don't remember it exactly. But then, guess what he became? He became a powerful church starter. Like, he, the first time he ever gave a teaching to a bunch of random strangers, 3,000 people got saved. Like, he became active. He became aggressive. He went on because he got a revelation of Jesus. You know, putting your eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, will be the thing that allows you to throw off the stuff and move forward. Happen to him. It'll happen to you. For the joy set before him. It's all about joy. Uh, There you are. Um, Annette pointed out when we were teaching a youth one day, yes, it's all about the joy. It's the joy. The joy compels us. And it does. When you realize the joy of the Lord, it will compel you to be aggressive. Nehemiah 8.10 says the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is strong enough to break this stuff that holds you down. So anyway, the way to run the race is to taste and see that the Lord is good over and over and over again. Um, So as you look um, at the great cloud of witnesses, those who go before you, then you realize you are running a relay race Um, because these people all went before you. It's all the same race. And that means there's a great importance for you to prepare the next generation to take the baton. Um, now I'm just going to cruise through, to end it. I'm going to cruise through a bunch of Hebrews 11 verses. Let me go to 17, verse 17. All right. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him, in a figurative sense. I'm not used to the New King James on that. That was weird wording for me. Regardless, um, here's Abraham. These are all, Hebrews 11, all examples of people who were witnesses to the life of faith, They did this. They're all very realistic, relatable examples. We can do this too. Let's press on. So this specific example, in fact, let's make it really relatable. Who here has ever believed that God made them a promise and then they got to a point in their life where they believed they were beginning to get that which God had promised and then it seemed like God was asking you to give it up, right? That's that happens, and some people, it can feel like, oh man, I blew it. I thought I heard from God. It must have been wrong, but sometimes God is just calling you to do these things, and he did this, and he was tremendously blessed. He did it because he figured, well, he asked me to give it up, but God is good, and he keeps his promises. He'll give it back to me. Even if I have to sacrifice my son like he's asking me to do, which seems very strange, I trust God, perhaps he'll raise him from the dead. I just know he made a promise to me and he's going to keep it. So I'm going to press on and do what he says. And he didn't even have to sacrifice his son. God made the way. You guys know the story maybe. Anyway, trust in God's promises, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Uh, So he is trusting that God's plans are the best, even if they don't make sense. 
Down at verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Jacob was never about protocols, but he was all about the promise of God. Remember, he, had, he was a twin brother, but he was not the firstborn. He was the secondborn. But his brother cared about the physical world. Jacob cared about those promises of God. And he wasn't a particularly moral guy, necessarily, but, and he certainly didn't care about protocols, as I mentioned, but he was like, hey, God made some really awesome promises to Abraham that got passed down to my dad that are going to get passed down, and I want that promise. It's supposed to go to my brother. Let's see if I can get my hands on the promise. I want that promise. I want the promises of God. That's what he cared about. And so he was like, hey, Esau, you look pretty hungry. I'll trade you your birthright. How about you can have my soup and I get the promises? He was like, okay. <laughs> he cared about the promises. He was sneaky. So now that he's an old man and he's actually seen the promises of God begin to be revealed through his son, Joseph, who uh, basically saved the world because he was obedient to Christ. And he's there and he's living in Egypt at the time. He goes to bless Joseph's two children and... Uh, he switches his arms because he just is not a man of protocols. He puts his right hand on the second-born son, just like he was a second-born son. And he just is trusting the goodness of God, uh, the promises of God over protocols. Um, and he just, I don't know where I was getting at that, but it's, it's a beautiful story. All right. <laughs> I was telling Rachel earlier that I made these notes and then I didn't review them because I get really nervous when I review them. So sometimes I come to things and I don't even know what my point was. <laughs> Go, for God. Go for God. Be aggressive. Verse 24, by faith Moses when he became of age. Ah, we read that one. Yes. Better uh, for the sake of Christ than all this wealth that does him no good in the long run. Um, 29 and 30, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. So here we have examples of people doing the impossible, seeing great miracles just because they believed. And I believe that that is possible for you too. Sometimes we don't see miracles because we're not brave enough to believe and just take that step. And here they did. They, I mean, you know how embarrassing it must have been to walk around those walls for seven days and blowing trumpets? I mean, the enemy standing on the walls are like, what the heck is going on? And then the walls collapsed and they won a great victory. Anyway, um, Rahab, it, it mentions Rahab. She was a prostitute. You know, that's not the life God has called us to, but here it praises her because she made a decision of faith that blessed the people of Israel. She decided for aggressive Christianity, and guess what she became? She became the ancestor. She was the carrier of the line of Jesus. Jesus came from her. Jesus will come from you if you are obedient to Christ. Anyway, all these stories are just about very regular people. They're not extraordinary people. The regular people who said yes to an extraordinary God and let the extraordinary God do extraordinary things for these regular people, just like you guys. And then let me go ahead and read the last two verses just because it leads up to where we started. And it says, and all these, all these people, you know, if you read the whole chapter, I mean, some of them were killed by swords and they were attacked or left destitute. Some of them experienced great wealth, great glory, all different purposes. But it didn't matter whether they got much or they suffered much because, you know, this wasn't their world. They were pressing on for something much greater. And it says, and all these, all these people, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the, the fullness of the promise, the, the full promise that God made. They didn't receive it completely. Yet, God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us, because this is a relay race. We're all in this together. We're running with Abraham. 
Right now, you're running with Abel. You're running with Rahab. You're running with Jesus and after Jesus. And then, you know, and then it says, therefore. That's where the therefore comes in. All this stuff. Let me read it one more time. This is how we're going to end. Oh, I went a chapter back. All right, here we go. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, guys, you have a reason to be joyful. That's how you let go of the things of the earth, because of the joy that's set before you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, meaning it doesn't matter to him. He's got something better ahead of him. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, just like you will. Amen. All right, let me pray for you. God, you know I can, I can teach about this, but I, I, I know you know in my heart, I, I, don't, I don't feel it the way I want to. I don't yet have that great revelation. I can look at my life and see that I am not a very aggressive Christian, and I want to be. I want to hear your voice. I want to say yes, but neither do I walk in shame because of it, because I am made whole because of your righteousness. Just like everybody here is completely purified if they have said yes to you. And Lord, if there is anybody here that has not said yes to you, I pray that you would speak to their hearts even now, and they would hear your voice, and they would say yes to you. But for those of us who have done that, Lord, I pray that they would be aware of your great love. They would feel no shame for anything. They'd be confident in your righteousness. But then, for me, and for my friends here, Lord, I pray for a revelation that rocks us, that breaks us, that encourages us into becoming active Christians for the sake of Christ. Do it, Lord. Change this world through us very regular people with your extraordinary you-ness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, I want to take... Uh, I'll turn you loose in just a couple minutes, um, but I had a realization uh, when Aaron was teaching and when he was sharing his experiences, and I, I have a suspicion that what I realized about myself, um, some of you are going through, so you know, I want to share the love or the pain or whatever it is. Um, so uh, this fit nicely with, last week, you remember, we started Second Peter, where we talked about everything we've obtained uh, in Christ but that it, how it had to be laid hold of, or we had to put effort into it, right? And then, of course, he talked this morning about endurance, and we're going to go next week, we're going to continue in Second Peter. Spoiler alert, the word diligence is going to figure prominently. So, uh, you know, obtain, lay hold of, endure, diligence, all these things talk about effort and work, right? How many of you are feeling uh, God pulling you, uh, challenging you into going harder for him. Uh, that's the season we're in, isn't it? So here's what I realized this morning when Aaron was talking about his experiences. Uh, I, I've been trying to do this because uh, I have to practice what I preach because God reminds me. So uh, I have to try and do the things I'm telling you guys. And so I've been trying to do this. I've been trying to press in. And I've been growing in confidence and growing in faith and experiencing more uh, of these things, right? And which is what you'd expect. Now, here's what I didn't expect. I've also noticed that uh, I'm experiencing more, not less, more internal conflict and weird oppressions that just come out of nowhere. Like, why am I, you know, Rachel, why am I feeling this I just, you know, it's my day off. Why am I feeling this? Uh, and these things are happening, and uh, which was counterintuitive to me. I was thinking that as I pressed in more to God, we would have less of these things, right? Uh, 
And so here, I'm realizing that. So this morning as I'm processing what Aaron's saying, it's as if God was going, well, yeah, uh, you're, you're coming closer to me, but you do have an enemy who doesn't want you to do that. And so you're experiencing more of this. And he goes, but what are you doing when you experience these oppressions? And things? I said, well, I'm, I'm looking at you and, uh, and I'm choosing to press into you and to resist those things. He goes, yeah, how's that working? I said, well, it's working pretty well. I said, right, so, you're, so, so it sounds like you're enduring and fixing your eyes on me. And I go, well, yeah, that's, that's kind of what Aaron's talking about, isn't it? Uh, and he said, yeah. And so I realized that uh, uh, there's not something wrong with me. I'm just engaged in the process of pursuing Jesus, right? Even though they're, they're, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with me. There still could be. but <laughs> So possibly there's not something wrong with you. You're just engaged in the process of pursuing Jesus. And so I just want to reiterate what Aaron said. Just endure. And every time you find that duality going on, just turn your focus to Jesus. And go, okay, I'm going to focus on the, how I'm growing in confidence in you, not on whatever this thing is. I'm going to resist it. I'm going to turn to you. And, and we're going to, uh, God's taking us somewhere. I thought it was interesting this morning that I felt like we were supposed to do that quiet time, a shift of focus, fixing our eyes on him, tuning out everything else. God is taking us somewhere. Amen? You want to go? Even though we might have to endure? All right, good. I'm with the right crowd. Lord, bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name, bless them, whatever that entails, in Jesus' name, amen.